Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Uh, but yeah, Luke chapter 8, and we are beginning in verse 16. The Lord says this, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have will be taken from them. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. And someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Amen. Let's be seated. So uh, Jesus is continuing uh, where we left off last week. So last week, he did the parable of the soils, the sower that goes out and scatters seed, and there are different types of soil that receives the seed differently. And the parable was the seed is the word of God. There's power in God's word. The challenge for us is how do we respond to it? And he's continuing that. And really, we've kind of put quite an unnatural break in Jesus' one um, uh, talk. But nonetheless, that's what we saw last week. We saw the word is sown, and the question was how do you respond to it? And so as I say, he now kind of carries on that thought with this kind of mini parable. As I just read, he, he talks about a lamp, and no one lights a lamp. If you're going to light a lamp, you wouldn't then cover it with a clay jar, nor would you hide it under your bed. The point of a lamp, so says Jesus, is uh, to light up the whole room. Don't hide it. Now, I do think there is a common misconception about the meaning of this verse. Certainly, it's what I had always uh, heard when people talked about this verse, which was essentially that Jesus was saying, how you, f- how you show your Christian faith, how you present your faith to others by what you do is like a lamp. Don't hide your faith, which is a, a good point. Don't hide your faith, but it's not, I don't think, what Jesus is talking about here. You know, and it, there is places where he does. So Matthew 5, he says, let your uh, good work shine before others so that they may see uh, you doing them and glorify the Father. So he does talk about displaying what we hold to be true. And I think a good question that I think is very challenging, which I've often asked myself, is if, if you were in one of these countries where it was illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Challenging one. But as I say, a good challenge, but I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think this is what the lamp represents. He's just talked about the word of God being sown. This is all about how we respond to him. And he finishes by saying, therefore, consider carefully how you listen. He doesn't say, therefore, consider carefully how you live, how you show yourself to others. It's about how you listen to him. And so I think it's better that we understand the lamp in this parable as being God's word, God speaking to us through the Bible. It's the teaching of Christ, as I say. What he says in response to it, his explanation, consider carefully how you listen, is about how you listen to him speaking to you through it. And so as I stand here talking from it and, and, and listening myself, and you stand here listening, then obviously this is quite a challenge. 
How do we listen to the word of God? Christ is teaching us to mind how we approach him. How we listen to him, how we hear his word, how, what we then do with it in response. The seed is thrown in many soils, but only one type of soil of the four actually grows fruit. He's used the example of a type of people who hears the word with joy, but then worries come and they get choked. Uh, he's talked about people who uh, receive it and then pleasures of life come along and they get choked. So he's, there's two different people that he's spoken about, people who receive it and then get worried and then people who receive it and then find something better or so-called better. And then obviously the, the uh, third of those is when he says, but the good soil receives it and grows. But now he calls us to consider how we receive that word, if we are indeed good soil, what we then do with it. And he uses the example of a lamp that fills the whole room with light. Now, consider this. Whenever you light a light in your house, the darkness doesn't then put up a fight. There is not this back and forth, this tug of war that you see as the light comes on and it's trying to push out all the darkness. It's not like when you kind of bring a, a, a gas into a room and it pushes out the gas that was there or something like that. Light, by its very nature, extinguishes darkness. As soon as light is present, darkness cannot but be defeated. Lights fill the room and they expose what was hidden. Uh, Perhaps I shouldn't be admitting this, but I used to keep my curtains closed uh, when I was a teenager so my mum wouldn't see how messy my room was because darkness keeps things that shouldn't be exposed in the dark. And so as the light comes in, it shows the mess. It shows what shouldn't be there. It shows what we were, being, what we were hiding. And it makes the room pleasant to be in. We use words like dingy. To, re to refer to that kind of dark room that you can't see anything in, a dingy, dark place. But when there's like pleasant lighting that has, just has an air of pleasantness to it, which would kind of be implied in the word pleasant lighting. But room, as I say, a, a room that is lit, the things that shouldn't be there are exposed, and the place becomes better to be in. And so the, example, the, the parable here is that when we hear Christ's words speak to us, when we hear his commandments... They're supposed to expose the darkness in our life. They're supposed to bring a pleasant sweetness to our life. His words are good for us. What John read to us earlier from Psalm 19, how sweet it talks about God's law, God's commands, God's precepts. What he commands us to do is good for us. It says it's like honey on the tongue. It says it's like pure gold. The image here is it's not as though God has given this command, which we're going, I'll do it, but I'm going to you know, uh, be uh, grumpy the whole time because this is a burden. To do God's law, to delight in God's law is easy if you love God. It's sweet. It's good for us. Not only is it good for us, but it also is good for us because it exposes, as I say, the things in us which shouldn't be there, the things which we are inclined to cover up. So Jesus asked this question, if you've lit a lamp, if you've taken the time to get the oil and get the matches and, and light this lamp, why would you then cover it up with a clay jar? Why would you then hide it under a bed? What's the thought process going on there? No one who lights a lamp then covers it up. And so 
what does Jesus mean by that? What, what is the going on there? What is the, this clay jar? What does it mean to put a lamp under a bed? Now, I think at this point, it's important to say there's a common... Maybe it's just me. When I read this, I imagine an Ikea desk lamp, right? You click the switch, and it turns on. Perhaps you're more culturally in tune than I am to Jesus' day, and you were aware that in first century Palestine, they weren't shopping at Ikea. But actually, I just want us to, to be reminded of what they were using. They were using open flame oil lamps. Okay, if you put that under a clay jar, you lose the oxygen, and it goes out. If you put that under a first century bed where the mattresses were made of straw, it doesn't just become dark in the room. In fact, it becomes very, very light because your bed's on fire. So Jesus' two examples here are, if you cover it with a clay jar, the light goes out. If you put it under a bed, your whole house, your livelihood burns down. What does that mean? Actually, I... I just said that it wasn't a Ikea desk lamp, but I remember when I was seven, we were staying at some friend's house near Sussex, and uh, we woke up very early in the morning because someone in the next house had left an Ikea desk lamp, this was back in the days before LEDs, under a desk, and it had gotten so hot that the desk had gone up in flames and the fire engine was there. So having just exonerated Ikea, I'm now condemning them again, but no, they, they were using oil flames. If you put it under a clay jar, the light goes out. Put it under a bed, your bed is on fire. So what is Jesus trying to say? What he's trying to say is this. You may try and cover up that light. You may try and cover up what God has commanded us, but you will either snuff out that light in your life or your whole life will go up in flames. You will reap destruction. So what does it mean to cover it with a clay jar? What does it mean to hide it under a bed? It means when we know what Jesus commands us, when we know what that light is, when we've heard from him and we put it to one side, when we hear Jesus say something like, every time you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery, and we go, ah, oh, I wasn't really looking. When Jesus says, honor your mother and father, when, when the Lord says that, but this time it's justified to argue with them and shout in their face. When he says, don't lie, but that was just a white lie. When the Bible tells us, do not conform to the thinking of this world. And we find ourselves going, actually, that idea that goes right against the Bible is quite good. We should think about that one. When he tells us, if you hate your brother, you've already murdered in your heart. We are covering up that light. And it might be under the clay jar. You might just be snuffing out what you hold to be dear in your life. You might be putting to death the last bit of obedience you did have to Christ, but you might be putting it under your bed. You might be about to see your whole life go up in flames. What about things that we might consider really minor? The Bible tells us in Galatians to bear with each other's burdens. How often do we fail to bear each other's burdens? The Bible tells us to confess our sins to one another. That's not something that we do. The Lord tells us to honor the Sabbath day. And when we fail to do these things, it's not just covering up the light. It's not just, oh, that's a shame. There's no light in my room. We are missing out on the blessing that these commandments offer. 
on the obedience that comes through the Word of God. Because these things expose things in us and give pleasantness and sweetness. In, in John 3, when you have the, John 3.16, the verse that we probably all know quite well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That verse is very well known. It tends to be the verses that come straight after that they get forgotten. John 3.19, let me just turn there. Turn with me if you have your Bibles. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus in, as I say, John chapter 3. He says this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they, have, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds may be exposed. John 3.16 says God's love for the world is what caused him to send Jesus. And just a few verses later, he's saying it's that same love which exposes our darkness. God's love, God's blessing on us is expressed in the fact that he sees something in our life which is not good, and he says, this is the line, don't cross it. There's blessing in having our sins called out. And so we put that, land on a stand, uh, that lamp on a stand where it can expose our darkness and allow us to be lit up by the word of God. To allow those who enter to see the room, to see that pleasantness, to see the teaching of Christ in our life. We don't want to hide it under the clay jar or under the bed. We want to put it on a stand so that all who come in can see the light. In verse 17 then, Jesus adds this. There is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. It's quite a solemn truth there, really. Nothing that is hidden will remain hidden. Everything done in secret will be brought out into the open. Jesus here is referencing the last day of history, the day he returns, what often gets called Judgment Day, the day that we will be resurrected to stand before the Lord. The Bible has lots of different names for it. Judgment Day tends to be the one we hear most popularly in our culture, but the Bible prefers the Day of the Lord or the Day of Judgment. And Jesus talks about it almost four times more than any other New Testament author. I think we often don't expect Jesus to talk about judgment as often as he does. And I think the concept of Judgment Day or a Day of Judgment is often seen as quite comical or kind of religious um, superstition at its highest. You know, this Judgment Day, you get films named Judgment Day. But the Bible talks about it as a reality. And actually, I think if you believe that there is such a thing as justice, if you believe there is such a thing as right and wrong, and that justice will be given out, then you have to believe in a day of judgment. And although it has negative connotations, the word judgment itself, when you say judgment, it sounds very negative. It's not necessarily a negative word. There's always a positive side to every judgment. You think about the child that's been adopted into a new family. When the judge declares this child to be adopted, that is a judgment. When someone has been wronged 
and it's taken to court, and they are exonerated, and the person who has uh, oppressed them has been uh, taken to justice. That is a judgment. They have been vindicated. And so the day of judgment is not simply a negative thing. The day of judgment is the day where every good work done in secret by God's people receives its reward. Where every tear that Jesus' sheep have cried alone is wiped away by the good shepherd himself. It's where those who believe that we have been justified by God, that we've been cleansed of our sins, and yet we still battle with sin, we still ache in these dying bodies, we still feel the curse of sin in our life, and we say, I've been set free, but we still fall into the same habits. We say, I've been set free from the curse of sin, but we still have to taste death. Just like last week when we lost Brian. Judgment day is the day where our faith becomes sight. Where death's sting is removed and we'll be resurrected to glorified new bodies and clothed visibly with the righteousness of God. Judgment day might sound like a religious fiction sometimes, but all of the Christian life looks forward to this day. This is the day where our faith becomes sight. And Jesus says nothing is hidden that will not be brought into the light. That's got a positive and a negative. As I say, every time we obey and it's hard and no one else sees it and no one else rewards it, but we have to do it because we hold the teaching of Christ to be more precious than gold or honey. This is the day where, as Matthew 25 says, Jesus comes to us and he says, welcome home, good and faithful servant. It's also the day where every sin we think we have gotten away with, every time we have covered that lamp with a clay jar, justice will be done. Every time we cling to the light when it's inconvenient to do so, God honors that. Every time we cover the light, God sees that. And on that day, the only person that we can be fooling is ourselves. If everyone else thinks we are the most godly, amazing person, and yet we know that in our own lives we are covering that light, the only person on that day will be fooling is ourselves. And so in verse 18, Jesus finishes by saying, Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whenever there's a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what's it there for? And it's therefore because Jesus has just said everything that he has said. And so in light of this coming day, be careful how you listen, how you pay attention to the word of God. Where does that light of Christ sit in your life? Is it on a stand? Is it hidden? Does it come out on a Sunday and go back again on Monday? I've been listening to a a book recently by a man called Joseph Henrich, who's a psychologist. And psychologists uh, and anthropologists who look at different world religions and different categories of morality have found that in the West, there's this thing called the, um, what's it called, the Sunday rhythm, I think they call it, where things which would traditionally by a Christian morality be considered immoral, pornography use, theft, those kind of things, dip on a Sunday significantly. By Wednesday, they're at their peak again. Sunday comes around, they dip. 
Now, I'm not necessarily saying that everyone who, who is involved in that is a, you know, a Bible-believing, Jesus-confessing Christian, but there will be some in that. Where does that light sit in your life? And Jesus attaches a blessing to this obedience. He says, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken away. I think the question that I definitely had as I read this was, have what? He who has what will be given more what? Those who don't have, what will they have taken away from them? And I've seen loads of questions of people trying to narrow it down to one thing. Some people say it's faith. Some people say it's love, it's joy, it's uh, an an experience of God, it's uh, the light of Christ, revelation of Christ, that kind of thing. I don't know what it is. I think Jesus has kept it vague on purpose. It's just whoever has will have more. Whoever Whoever does not have, even what they think they have will be taken away. I think at its most rudimental level, if I had to narrow it down to anything, it's blessing of some sort. It's the blessing of God for obedience. The psalmist talks about the blessing of obedience as we've heard in Psalm 19 and in other places. The blessing of obedience. Just consider that phrase with me. The blessing of obedience. It's a funny thing, the word of. I can see Anna grinning because she's heard me say this so many times. It's one of the things that fascinates me about language. Of can mean so so many different things depending on how you use it. So for instance, the love of money refers to my love for money. The love of God refers to God's love for me. A bucket of coal refers to something filled with coal. A sword of steel refers to a sword made of steel. The blessing of my wife might mean my wife is a blessing. It might mean the blessings that she gives me. It can be used in so many different ways. So when we talk about the blessing of the law, the blessing of obedience, are we talking about a blessing that comes from obeying or the blessing that is obeying? And if you were to ask me that question, I would say yes. How about both? How about to obey is blessing itself? Because as we find ourselves walking in God's ways, It brings harmony, not just in our own lives, but at a societal level. And how about this? God promises to add blessing to the blessing that already comes from it. This is what Jesus says. The one who has more will be given to him. The one who has the blessing of obedience will be blessed by more knowledge of the word of God, by more blessings added to that. The one who says, look, of course I'm blessed. Look at my life. I may have wronged people and stabbed people in the back and murdered people in my heart and committed adultery in my heart and never given a a, a thought to God's law, but look how blessed I am. On that day, on the day that Jesus has talked about, on Judgment Day, the blessing that they think they have, even that, will be taken away. Even what he thinks he has will go. Psalm 19, as John O'Red says, By them, the commands of God, your servant is warned. And in keeping them is great reward. Hear this. I really, if there's anything from this sermon, if you forget everything else, I just want you to hear this. We battle with sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. I battle with sin and we strive 
for righteousness. The Bible talks about fighting the good fight. But so long as we think that this fight is a battle with no reward, it becomes harder and harder and harder to obey because sin offers a very quick reward, but a reward that turns to poison. The Bible does not say, keep fighting because the fight itself is the blessing. The Bible says, fight. Keep fighting. Keep striving. Because the blessing from this is far more than anything you could ever experience anywhere else. I'm tempted at this point to go into a delayed gratification. You know the experiment with the two marshmallows. You give a child a marshmallow, you say, if you wait 10 minutes and I'll come back, you can have another one. And I don't want to make eternal blessings from God sound like two marshmallows. But it's a helpful analogy. God promises to make abundant the blessings he's already given. What promise does sin make? You can see the promises that sin makes from the very first time sin comes onto the scene. Yes, that fruit that Adam and Eve eaten may have tasted good. Was it worth it? Many thousands of years later, I think we would all know the answer is no. And so then now we move into that last section where Jesus is now finished and he's, he's now talking and his mother and his brothers come. Now I think that as we read this, we think, okay, now we're moving on to another section. But I think Jesus, knowing that the crowd is still listening to what he's saying, uses this to really drive home his point. He adds the most precious incentive, the most precious reward for obedience here. His mum and his brothers come, and, and Mark's gospel, Luke doesn't include it, but Mark's gospel says that they've come to grab him because he's clearly out of his mind, the things he's saying. So they're now coming to snatch him away. They have missed who Jesus is. Let's remember that this sermon series is called Seeing Jesus because Luke's gospel is full of people who spend lots of time with Jesus, who hear lots of things that he says. I mean, the classic adage, Judas heard every sermon from Jesus, but have completely missed that this person is the Messiah and is worthy of my obedience. His mother and his brothers have grown up with him and have no clue who he really is. And what a warning that is. You can spend every day in your Bibles. You can spend every day being close to Jesus and forget the fact that when he demands something from you, he has every right to do so. We need to see Jesus. See him as the sower. And Jesus says, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Now, Jesus' words here are not a rejection of his earthly family. He's not saying, I hate my mum and my brothers. Rather, it's him using them as an example. He's showcasing the most, um, the greatest, as I say, incentive to obey. He's using them as an example. The one who hears his word and does it is his family. Now, this is a day where family was very, very big. You can be someone's family and never have met them. But mother and brothers, that is very close-knit family. And he says, the one who does the word, who hears it and does it, this is my intimate family. The greatest blessing that could be offered for obedience to his word. 
the greatest incentive to have the seed of the word sown deep in our lives, to put the word of God on a lampstand and have all our darkness exposed, what is that greatest blessing? That you and I are welcomed into the family of the Messiah. That he would look at you and say, you're not just out there, you're not just a follower, you're not just a friend, you are my family. Come into the embrace. I, al- I always, every single week that we do the song, um, Living Hope, I'm always struck by that verse, how we just can sing something as mental as the God of glory stepped down to wear my sin and my shame. I've just talked about they needed to see who he really is. Get who this guy is. And then in the very next verse, welcome to the family. The one who Jesus calls to himself is the one who hears the word. It's important that we hear. Let's hear with reverence and eagerness. And then does it who doesn't leave that knowledge out there as something just to know. As many of you know, I went to Bible college. I I was surrounded by lots of people who were studying the Bible academically, and most of them, I can say with confidence, were not doing it purely academically, but certainly it is possible to study the Bible purely as something to be known. But Jesus says the one who hears it and does it. Jesus welcomes those people into his family. So the challenge for all of us, are you a hearer? Good. Let's hear the word. Let's have our ears open to hear from him. He finished the last sermon by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. But are you a doer? Are we putting the word of God into practice in our lives? That is not easy. If you say yes, probably a liar. I definitely am. Since I wrote the sermon, the amount of times in my life I thought, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Jesus says not to do that. It's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we need your spirit. Jesus, when you promised us the Spirit, you said that you would send the Comforter to convict us of our sins. And Lord, we need that. We need that light to expose our darkness. But Lord, we need your comfort. We thank you that you call the Spirit the Comforter, the Spirit of adoption, the one who takes us into the family, into the throne room of God. Lord, help us not to cover that light with a clay jar or to put it under a bed and see our house burn down. But Lord, be lit by it. Feel the warmth of that lamp. Teach us to obey, Lord. Teach us to echo what the psalmist says, that we delight in your word. We delight in obedience, not because we think that the more we obey, the more you'll love us but because you've already loved us with an infinite, inexpressible love. Teach us, Lord, we pray.
teach us. And Lord, welcome us into your family. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.